Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Critically analyzing new information is an invaluable life skill. We don't always know how credible an article or a post online is, or how much we should let it influence our actions and well-being. It's hard enough navigating our world with well-intentioned people unintentionally spreading bad information. So what about state actors spreading bad information to deceive and hurt us? In today's episode, we're covering misinformation, disinformation, and fake news. Stick around and you'll learn how to identify bad information and just how pervasive it is. So what does misinformation and disinformation, fake news, not fake news, have to do with security, some people may ask. The truth of the matter, and we're experiencing this more than ever right now, is whether intentional or unintentional, bad information can and many times does impact your well-being. Identifying deception is critical in mitigating risks from things like social engineering, scams. We've discussed these topics before, but knowing where to find those nuggets of truth and then also finding the areas where it deviates from the truth is important because it will protect you. And we've talked about that as well in the conspiracy theories episode. Now, with all that, laying out a framework to show tools for identifying deception or or, or misinformation, because again, most of the time, a lot of stuff is not deception. A lot of it is misinformation. And that is the person is not intentionally trying to deceive you. They just have bad information on themselves. But that can be even more dangerous because they believe in it so much that when confronted, they don't say, oh, okay, yeah, I was wrong. It's usually they get defensive. But we'll help you identify and give you some tools that you can keep in your pocket of saying, hey, okay, this this part might be true and these parts aren't true. So let's talk about the first part, misinformation, because that's what we're going to be running into most of the time. It's unintentional, first of all. The unintentional sharing of bad information is pervasive in our world today. A lot of people believe the information that they're sharing. It's just you have to be able to reflect on that information and say, okay, uh, that was actually bad. I, I didn't receive the full story on this. And if we don't do that, and this is the problem that we have today, it's one of the problems that we have today. We have a lot of problems today. But it's one of the problems we have today is people, when they presented with the information saying, no, this this is actually bad information, they get defensive because they see it as a personal attack. And this is the tricky part with misinformation is a lot of people get emotionally tied to certain things. And so when they when they're presented with the reality of the story, They just want to outright say, no, you're lying, you're fake news or something like that. And we should really try to stay away from that. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And it's it's a pretty wild phenomenon because this even happens with folks that are super rational as well. Right. I have friends who are super smart. Their whole existence is kind of fact based. The profession that they have, the careers that they have, the work that they do. It's all based on kind of the scientific method and trial and error and observation and figuring out like where the ground truth lies. And then the same people can be presented with misinformation and fully believe it. 
And then when you present them with facts, like the same sort of facts that they would expect to be using in the other line of work or in other areas of their life, it just doesn't register, right? Like there's this emotional tie to it, which like I've struggled with before and I don't really have a good answer for how to address that. It does bear bear stating that this tends to be, especially for the sort of information that is shared online, this tends to be more pervasive with older people, which is to say, like, if you weren't the generation that grew up with the internet, if it kind of just came into existence, you know, halfway through your life, you know, you, you started in a world where most of the information that was printed, depending on what way you're getting your print sources from, granted, you're not going for the National Enquirer or whatever that uh, whatever that tabloid is that you find in the grocery store aisles that are like, ah, this alien ended up having an affair with this president or something to that effect. Most of the information that actually makes it to print has some amount of rigor behind it, right? Like if you get Atlanta Journal Constitution or the LA Times, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or all these different print copies, there's actually like teams of reporters and journalists and editors and, and producers behind this. So the likelihood that the information that makes it into these, these articles is quite a bit lower than the threshold that we have now where anybody can have a blog. We even have like a bunch of different services or not services, websites now have their own like opinion piece portals. You can get something posted on the New York Times or the LA Times or Wall Street Journal. And it always starts with the word opinion. But even though it's oh, and like wired as well, despite the fact that it starts with the word opinion, you still have information being shared on websites that are related to uh, these otherwise kind of influential and mostly fact-checking information sources. All that is to say that, like, you gotta you gotta think about if you aren't one of the denizens of the the internet, one of the folks that kind of grew up with the internet, the world that you lived in before the internet. A lot of what you read could be taken not necessarily at face value, but at least there's more truth to it than the vast amount of misinformation that you can find online today. Hey, Chris, to your point of print publications weaving or interleaving opinion pieces and actual journalism, we also see that in cable news. It's very prevalent there. And I don't think a lot of people are great at differentiating between the two. Oh, and you're, you're talking about how like, so for instance, one of the main places that I was watching election coverage uh, for this most recent election was Fox News, because they have like fantastic data-driven journalism for the election coverage. And uh, it's actually like pretty fact-based, but you know, there's plenty of stuff that you see on Fox News that is eh, more or less not fact-based. Is that the, is that what you're referring to? It, yeah, that's where I was going. Uh, they have a couple programs which are explicitly not news. Uh, their news yeah. programs are great. Like I, I love Shepard Smith. He's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that a lot of people are forgetting once we've had this 24-hour news cycle, the news companies started to realize they needed to compete with entertainment TV. So they started to become kind of like that entertainment TV where they'll have uh, your your news anchor is no longer your news anchor. They're, they're a host for a show that's similar to what should be viewed as a talk show, uh, like a late night talk show or something like that, in my opinion. And a lot of people just see the hosts and they still think them as a news anchor, which is a news anchor is just one that disseminates the information that's been verified to you uh, from their yep. studio uh, yep. where these hosts are entertainers. They're, they're not necessarily 
ones that are trying to deliver unopinionated, non-biased information to you. With that, this misinformation can sometimes be, we talked about it in the beginning, but it, it can be risky to your health. Uh, it can be risky to your well-being. Some of this for what we're dealing with right now, the coronavirus, dealing with people not wanting to wear the mask. And there's a ton of misinformation. I remember in the very beginning, um, there was a ton of misinformation about effectiveness uh, of the mask. And should you be wearing one? Shouldn't you be wearing one? And this is actually a situation where this uh, this misinformation that people had was originally started because of a disinformation campaign by our government. And that was in the very beginning when they said, don't wear a mask. And, and that was driven from a few different facets. But one of the main drivers was hospitals did not pay attention to the CDC's warnings and, and their pandemic preparedness plans that they've released uh, on a yearly or bi-yearly regiment, and they were not prepared. So now we have U.S. citizens, international citizens competing for limited supply of PPE. So the government said, you don't need to wear a mask. Turns out, well, actually you do. And you need to wear very particular types of masks to, to make sure that they're effective. But with the government saying you don't need that, and then all of a sudden switching after the hospitals got the PPE that they needed, to last for a certain period of time why new manufacturers could get spun up. They're like, oh, yeah, you should wear a mask as well. And people took that as like, oh, look, they're you know feeding us this information. And they would use official statements by the government at that time to then lead their other inf misinformation. They would say, well, they said this in the beginning, so XYZ must be true as well. That is where we get into disinformation. And then they're adding their own bits to it. And even when it comes out like, OK, yeah, that was intentional and they did it for, you know, less than ethical reasons, in my opinion. Now that we know that that was disinformation, all this other misinformation as came from this one little tidbit of disinformation is now prevalent. And, and we have to deal with it every single day. I mean, there's still conversations that people are having of, oh, masks are ineffective. And it's just like, OK, yes. Some masks are ineffective. This is true. Single product cloth masks. Yes, they are 5% effective. Uh, so pretty much ineffective. Uh, N95 or, or better is effective. But they take that. They say, oh, look, there's a study saying these masks are ineffective. Therefore, all masks are, are ineffective. Yep. And yep. It's just like, yeah. oh, man, this is uh, it's been my life for the last few months all dealing with that <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, i want to i want to point something out with that as well is i'm sure you guys have heard of the, there's like this big set of logical fallacies which is kind of all these different things that you don't want to do when making a rational argument one of the logical fallacies is the false dichotomy which is yes. to say that like either something is white or black there's no gray in the middle so it's, it's your example of that yeah great exactly so it's your example about the about the mask it's like okay look either all masks work or all masks mm -hmm. don't work, when in reality, there is very little in this world that can actually be bucketized like that, where it's like you're either zero or one. Like very few things are actually that cut and dry, when in reality, it's like some masks work, some masks don't. 
some masks give this amount of effectiveness, other masks give this other uh, amount of effectiveness. And I think it's just one of those things that you have that one of the flaws of the human brain, which is like, it's 2020 inform it's information overload, right? Like every single day, you're adjusting so much information. So you have to you have to find a way to cut through that noise, find the signal within the noise. And so one of the one of the quick things, one of the easy ways for you to kind of be like, okay, cool, I'm taking something away from this is like, well, it's it's actually, you know, it's cut and dry. It's it's either yes or no. When in reality, it's like there is a middle ground somewhere that's this false dichotomy. And you have to understand that like, while while this part might be true, that part might not be. It is more uh, nuanced. And also, like, if you're, if you are in a position of power and you're spreading this mis like I have been so frustrated with the number of parties where it's like you should be able to be use your platform for good and you have people like Elon Musk saying like ah don't worry about don't worry about the coronavirus it's going to be over in April and uh, and he's been like firing workers who haven't Bro. been to work because they're yeah. because they don't they're they're afraid of coronavirus and now he has coronavirus and you have Joe Rogan who has like you know millions of people listening to his show talking about how like, oh yeah, masks don't work. And it's like, this is, you have to bear some responsibility for the information that you spread, especially when you have such a powerful platform. Like it's not, this isn't a game. This isn't funny. These are human lives that you're dealing with. And when you yeah. have that amount of power, you have to have more responsibility than these people actually are demonstrating. But okay, so we talked about misinformation. We've talked about disinformation. Logan, can you clarify what what's the difference between the two? Sure. We have talked about this disinformation a little bit now. The primary difference between the two is disinformation is intentionally sharing bad information to deceive. The purpose is to deceive and influence uh, the listener's behavior. And there are a couple of ways of going about this. Each one of these ways has its own insidious ways of tricking us. Oh, one of the easiest ones to really think about is just spreading outright lies. You can spread disinformation that is just completely untrue and baseless, and people will take it at face value. <laughs> uh, fortunately, disinformation spread in that way is generally easy to falsify and disprove. The forms of disinformation that are more difficult to really reason about is disinformation where they take actual facts and just exaggerate them a little bit. Or instead of exaggerating them, they take the facts and they spin a narrative around them out of context. In the world of disinformation, there's actually classes that the government offers for some of its employees. Clandestine <laughs> I was wondering how how to say that without saying that directly, but uh, <laughs> for for some of their employees, uh, and it's about disinformation and propaganda building and psyops stuff like that. But one thing that I found interesting is the idea that the best disinformation is ninety percent truth. Yeah, and, and it was uh, there's a natural like metric that they have. I mean, they have it literally down to they have disinformation down to a science. It is crazy, crazy, crazy how well they're at building essentially propaganda or something like that. Pro not all propaganda has to be disinformation, but a lot of it is, though. <laughs> a, lo yeah, a lot of it is right. And it was I forget the exact number it was, but th they were discussing that this disinformation if you have this percent of truth into it, it becomes 
almost impossible for people who actually know the real truth to convince others that this is disinformation. When I heard that, I was like, damn. That's scary. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and, (laughs) And they have, I mean, with disinformation, it's not just sharing that information. It's the campaign of calling out all those who are calling it fake. You ridicule them, you persecute them so that they don't do it. Even if they know the information that they're hearing is fake, they are so persecuted that if they come out with the truth, they will be ostracized from society. That is how a true disinformation campaign is ran. And that's on the state level. And we're talking state level are the masters of this. I mean, uh, when we hear about this, we hear about Russia... You know, the the KGB, which is no longer around. GRU, um, FSB, whatever the next act yeah, is going to be. W- w- whatever yeah. it is. But which is funny because you uh, th- there are no ex-KGB agents, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. That's one of, that's one of the sayings in, in, uh, in the Eastern European region, but also China. But a lot of people forget. You know, we hear Russia, we hear China, we hear all, you know, Iran, North Korea, all, all these countries that have you know, huge disinformation campaigns, people forget the true masters of disinformation. And and I would say probably Russia and KGB is number one, number two, the U.S. And it's, I mean, if we could just take a a brief look at history, which we won't cover in in this podcast because we just don't have time. I mean, it could be, it could be five podcasts on its own, but the U.S. (laughs) is the master of disinformation. And we forget that as U.S. citizens. If you're a U.S. citizen listening to this, we know not all our listeners are solely based in the U.S., but if you are in the U.S., you have to remember that when we talk about state-sponsored propaganda, state-sponsored disinformation campaigns, that we are not absolved from that. We are we are part of that. And so much so that I would definitely claim we're probably... Number two, if maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe Russian folks think we're number one, but definitely number one or number two on the list of disinformation. Yeah. And then if, if you look at our private sector, like the quote unquote public relations, where so many companies are heavily engaged and just like, eh, we need to, you know, their whole thing is like, we need to preserve this mirage of this brand or whatever. And so they turn objectively bad things into like, eh, not so bad. And like we, there's a number of things. Well, actually, like, like you said, there's a huge list of these that go on and on, but there's a number of them that kind of come to the the forefront. Moving from, you know, government and public base state sponsored disinformation to company private base disinformation which is huge, so huge that that we we do want to talk about some of these. The first one that comes to mind, Coca-Cola paying scientists to downplay sugar and obesity. This is crazy. When I first heard this, that this was happening, and, and this has been happening for a long, long time, it really made me think, oh, crap. Well, if Coke is doing this with their product, what are other companies doing with their product? In the same vein, right? We're told, trust the scientists, trust the science. Well, crap. Uh, Now I learned that these people can just be bought off like anyone else. 
what can I try or what, what can I trust now? We have other examples of this, but this particular one became such a problem that even though we know the information today, like if you eat excess amounts of sugar, it is bad for you. You'll have problems, not just with obesity, but other problems that are linked to obesity. People still just don't care. They're just like, yep, that's fine. Yeah. And it's because yeah. I think they were conditioned for such a long time to say like, oh, yeah, this wasn't that bad. And now that, oh, it is bad. They've accepted that information. It's no longer like disinformation. But it's a matter of degree. Yeah. It, 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 they're just numb to it now. They're just like, ah, you know, I, I was told this wasn't bad when I was younger. I drank it all my life. And look, I'm still alive. And they don't necessarily are the pillar of of what would be a physical specimen uh, of the human race. <laughs> <laughs> that, that reminds me of an article that I that I was reading this morning, where it's like it was written by either a nurse or a, or a doctor talking about how they have patients in the ICU, where it's like these people are just like screaming, "I'm like, I don't have COVID. Like, no, COVID's not fit. Like, test me for something else. Something else here is going on." I was reading the same. Yeah, yeah. Ar arguing up to the point that they're being intubated and they die. And it's like, like even when they are in the hospital with COVID on death's door being intubated, they are still convinced that COVID does not exist. They should just like, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just it, it's wild. And then like the like the cigarette companies. Yeah, cigarette companies paying off uh, doctors to publish papers saying the cigarettes are in fact not bad for you. <laughs> Uh, I believe this was prominent in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, there's a whole there's a whole TV show about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely crazy that this uh, happened. Uh, also, just as an aside, the guy who coined the term public relations, uh, Edward Bernays, it was called propaganda before it was public relations. <laughs> it was swapped to public relations to not ha have people think of propaganda. It's too on the nose. That, wow, that's that's really meta. It's like propaganda about propaganda. <laughs> we can go deeper. Yeah. So another good example, uh, Chevron. Chevron uh, was aware of global warming uh, like half a century ago. And uh, since that time, they've downplayed it because it's not good for their bottom line. Well, we'll have to drop some links in the show notes. Next up. Uh, cable companies and net neutrality. That one kills me, right? Because it's like net neutrality is one of the foundational pillars that has fostered the burgeoning economy of the digital era, right? Like the internet is the way it is because of like, not, not 100% because of net neutrality, but net neutrality has played a critical role. And net neutrality, for anyone who's not familiar, is uh, simply this requires that ISPs, internet service providers, the ones that you get your internet from, they cannot charge different rates or prioritize for money different types of traffic, which is to say that like whether or not they're carrying Netflix or Amazon or you know just some random website, regardless of where the traffic is going, they have to treat it all the same. And while that doesn't necessarily sound like a big deal, let me give you an example of how you could, if you didn't have net neutrality, uh, there would be heavily anti-competitive practices, which, by the way, a bunch of ISPs already engage in. I think Comcast yeah. was caught uh, throttling Netflix while they were trying to roll out their own competitor. Uh, but that, that's a great example. It's basically like, look, if you're an ISP and you're having to carry all of this media traffic because like, there's new companies like Netflix or like YouTube and, and they're just 
hogging all of this bandwidth, you might also think like, you know what? That seems like a pretty profitable business. Also, it's eating into eating into the margins of this other part of my business. Like so ISPs commonly also are cable providers, right? So they're actually providing TV and people are watching less TV. There's the whole cord cutting revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. So you might say, well, you know what? I'm going to launch my own competitive service. So I'm going to launch a Netflix competitor and I'm going to prioritize traffic to my service and deprioritize traffic to Netflix. So if I am a Comcast customer and uh, I'm trying to use Netflix, the, the connection is going to be really bad. I'm not going to get, it's going to be hard to watch because it's such low quality. Whereas when I watch the Comcast version, it's super high quality. And so all of a sudden, regardless of the fact that Netflix is actually the superior product, you are forced to use the ISP's product. And that is what net neutrality prevents. And all of the cable companies hate net neutrality because they could effectively sell different tiers of packages where it's like, oh, you want the streaming package. That's an additional this amount of money. Oh, you want quick access to social media. That's this other thing over here. They could charge you different rates for access to these different systems and they can engage in anti-competitive behavior. But to hear them say it, to hear them say it, net neutrality is preventing the internet from taking off. It's, it's, you know, it's anti-competitive. It's, it's, it's basically, they're, they're going through the laundry list of here's all the things that it's actually benefiting and saying that it does the exact opposite. And this is the other thing that a lot of people forget about net neutrality is if you run a small business, you will never, unless your small business is well-funded, which a lot of small businesses aren't. And especially now that we had, you know, uh, how many ungodly amounts of small businesses go out of business new small businesses are going to replace those uh, you know over the years if you run a small business you will never be able to compete with the big players with net neutrality for example let's say you run some small e-commerce site and you sell leather goods or something like that true leather goods or whatnot and you don't want to sell necessarily on amazon because they take a 30% cut or whatever their cut is. So now Amazon pays for their service delivered extremely quickly to someone's browser. Whenever you go to Amazon, it's going to pop up instantly like it does now. But when they go to your site, since you're not paying that extra amount that they want to get the fast delivery to your customer service, you know, the, the extra $120 a month that they'll want you to pay, your site loads fairly slow. And I've been on that side where I'm just like, you know what? This site is loading, loading too slowly for me. Like, I don't want to deal with it. There are yeah. other companies out there that sell the same product. I'm just going to go and buy from one of their competitors because their website yeah. is either atrocious or it's just the one thing that really gets me is slow loading times. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so so as a small business, you won't be able to compete in that sector anymore. You won't be able to compete in other sectors or other offerings because you can't afford to pay even that you know extra $120 a month because, again, most small businesses aren't funded by you know investors, by uh, backers, stuff like that. So if you take this and you apply it, not just to streaming services, because streaming services is something that a lot of people focus on because there's a lot of not just, you know, it's, it's not just theoretical. There's actually 
documented proof that, yeah, this was abused by certain companies. Uh, VoIP services are the same way, right? Verizon and there's a few VoIP companies that have had a problem with Verizon because Verizon offered regular phone service. So Verizon's like, ah, well, if we deprioritize some of these calls, then uh, what's going to happen is these calls are going to drop and they're just going to use our regular landline to make these calls instead of this VoIP service. So we think about these big cases, but you have to think about it outside of those big cases as well. Uh, or, or these big companies that are that are complaining about it. It's not just that. It's it's the small businesses that would have to compete and that can't compete. So what we're going to have is just small businesses continue to fail. They're going to start up and then, you know, eight months later, they're going to go under because they just can't deliver their services and goods, which might be superior than some of the products that are available by the larger companies to their customers in a timely fashion. Yeah, we we care deeply about net neutrality, so we we often go on tangents when we when we talk about. It. There's yeah. there's one other one. There's one other example that comes to mind uh, for me because it just happened in California, and I lived on the west side over in Venice, and uh, well, there's this Proposition 22, which was this proposition that was funded by all of the gig companies, so like Uber, Lyft, Postmates, DoorDash, uh, because it was basically like, yo, your employees. They're effectively full-time employees. You can't keep calling them not full-time employees. You have to give them benefits. So that was the law that was passed. And then Uber and Lyft and them were, were all pushing for like, whoa, hold on, wait a second. They put a stay on it and then it was going to be, be actually enacted and, and the requirements were, were going to be enforced. And so then they came out with Prop 22, which was basically undoing that. So saying like, oh yeah, no, we don't need... They're, they're calling it IC plus now, like independent contractor plus. So I guess a private company is able to come up with a new designation for uh, like workers' rights. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, you get to do that when you write the law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So so Prop 22 was basically undoing this and saying that, well, no, no, we didn't, don't actually need to give them health care and benefits and stuff like that. Like, oh, we, they're, we, we the companies that are, have the most to lose, are actually the most motivated to treat these employees well. Like, we, we know what fair means, which, like, by the way, that... You never want to trust those parties being the one that say that. That's why we have unions. That's where unions came from, because employers are usually not the ones that have your best interest in mind, especially at that scale. So uh, Prop 22 was going to or, or did repeal this. And uh, <laughs> I remember there was one particular corner that there were all these advertisements from Postmates. They were really nice looking advertisements, like really cool artwork on them. And it was like, yes, for healthcare. Yes, for workers' rights. Yes, for this. Yes, for that. Vote yes on Prop 22. And per my understanding of Prop 22, that is straight. There's not really room for misunderstanding here. That is patently false. That is not what the bill was doing. Sorry, that was not what the proposition was doing. It was explicitly the exact opposite. So, you know, you do have disinformation where it's like, well, 90% of it's right. And then you have this shit where it's like, this is just a lie. This is a straight up lie. This is just that reason. Oh, yeah, we're just going to have, we're, yeah, and, uh, Logan, when I mentioned this to you, you're like, yeah, well, we're in the post-truth era. They're just like, oh, it's such a gross concept. Uh, it but it appears to be true because you have these companies that are dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into these ad campaigns and just straight up deceiving the electorate. And the electorate is just not, not informed enough to say like, oh yeah, maybe this is bad. That's a good segue. It's, uh, when you think of, when you frame it that way, 
uh, these multi-billion dollar companies versus like us as individuals, we don't really stand much of a chance because they have so much expertise and money and time to throw at the problem. <laughs> yeah, and there's also there's also no like legal recourse for them to be just like brazenly lying to everyone. Yeah. <sighs> Lordy. Well, um <laughs> and talking about ad campaigns, so we've given a couple really good examples of um, you know, companies in real life uh waging disinformation campaigns. What about the areas in our lives where we're most likely to run into this now? which is online, social media, Reddit, what have you. Yeah, yeah. So um, for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, go watch Social Dilemma. If this sort of topic around misinformation and disinformation is of interest to you, highly recommend watching Social Dilemma. Um, It's basically this documentary on Netflix, and it goes through, it's kind of like the underpinnings of of how these social media companies work. And I'll I'll try to give a a quick description of it. So, So basically... You know, you're on a social media platform and the social media platform exists to make money. It's a you know, private or, or publicly held company, but it, like, it is, its goal is to make money. So how does it make money? Well, it finds that like, oh, there's these core key metrics uh, that drive their profits. And for like companies that are based on advertising, it's, it's somewhat obvious what these are. It's like, oh, well, how many hours are people spending with eyeballs on their screens and our app, right? How many people are, how, how long are people spending with our platform? And they call that engagement, right? And they always want to drive that up because the longer you're on the platform, the more ads you're going to see. Um, there's also kind of stuff like recall. There's a number of impressions. Like, so how many, how many ads can I actually serve to somebody before it starts driving them away from the platform? And so they have they they have all of this data because when you're using these apps, it's just like constantly harvesting data and saying like about your behavior. What are you doing within the app? What are you clicking? How are you navigating? How long are you staring at the screen before like scrolling up? All this stuff is being tracked. So they are dialing in their understanding of how you're actually engaging with the app. And they can boil all that engagement down to these metrics that they care about, right? So engagement, uh, impressions, uh, stuff like that. And and so they have these hard numbers that are able to say like, yes, in this region, this is how many hours per day people were spending on our app. Okay, so they have these numbers and they say, well, we know that when engagement goes up, profits go up. So they want to find ways to drive engagement up. And then they have this other contraption that they call A-B testing, which is to say that you know somebody comes up with an idea. They say, you know what? I think if we do this thing over here, we add this new feature, or we tweak the tweak the app in this particular way, it's actually going to drive up engagement, or it's going to drive up one of these other uh, key performance indicators or, or KPIs that we care about. And so they will implement that new feature, tweak whatever, and then they'll do something called A/B testing, which is effectively running a scientific experiment on two groups. So you'll have the control group and you'll have the testing group. So they'll take a, a representative chunk of users, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, and they will not roll out that feature or product uh, to those parties. And then they'll have the testing group where the same number, same number of people generally just going to be the same sort of distribution of, of different demographics that they're testing for. And they will give that feature to this, uh, this other group and then they'll let it run for a period of time and they'll say, okay, between these two groups, do we see a noticeable or statistically significant improvement in this metric that we are engineering for? 
And if the answer to that is yes, then that new feature or product is a candidate for rollout to the general populace within this app. And so it's, it's I mean, it's, it's the scientific method applied to these numbers that actually drive uh, drive profits for the company. And that's in and of itself entirely uh, benevolent, or at least the idea behind it is entirely benevolent. It's like, look, we have these things we care about. We have the ability to run these experiments and the outcome of these experiments is good. We have data-driven decisions. Like we're making decisions about our app based on data that we're collecting. And that's a very, uh, you know, that that makes sense, especially coming from uh, like scientifically based rational minds. That makes sense as an approach. But the problem is that it's kind of, hacking the human psyche, right? Like, because they're kind of disparate ideas of like, well, we're measuring this metric over here and we're running these experiments over here. There's no real appreciation of like, what what is that actually doing, right? Like, okay, so yeah. <laughs> if, the, if the whole thing is like, well, I want people to spend more time in the app. It turns out that like humans are broken in a lot of ways. And when you have salacious information being spread, people can't take their eyes off of it, right? Where it's like, oh my gosh, the, the whole thing with the National Enquirer and the, and the grocery <laughs> grocery checkout line, it's like, you're looking at it, it's like, I can't believe that an alien flew down from outer space and actually, you know, got somebody pregnant. Well, I, I'm now, I'm interested now. I'm, I'm engaged with this thing. It's the same thing en masse with all these apps. And so, so the parties that were behind this, I don't think they intended it to end up with this thing that it's like this, fantastically efficient misinformation spreading platform. But the fact of the matter is when there is stuff that is emotionally engaging or that really like irritates you or frustrates you or makes you scared, has these uh, kind of emotional responses to them, you end up spending more time on these platforms. So while it wasn't the intended outcome, this system that's been built between the, the KPIs and the A-B testing and kind of the lack of any sort of ethics over oversight committee uh, or like putting ethics in there entirely too late has resulted in a platform that is fine-tuned to solely spread misinformation. Like that is the fastest it spreads like freaking wildfire. Like they, they cannot stop it. They've created this problem and they're literally hiring legions of people trying to stop it. But the fact of the matter is like on YouTube, it's, I, I don't know what the metrics are, but it's some crazy metric where it's like, oh, yeah, years and years of video are uploaded every single day. Like, how it's, many people? It's you, so much content. It's, yeah. it's so much content. You <laughs> can't possibly put enough human eyes on it to actually solve this problem. So these folks have unintentionally created these platforms that are specialized at spreading misinformation and disinformation and are utilized by state actors to do so. Yeah. And they are just incredibly efficient at doing it. They are. And uh, we are recording this after uh, the election. Uh, everything has been uh, the election has not been certified yet, but it's pretty much 100 percent that Joe Biden won the election at this point. Um, mm -hmm. Only if you count the illegal votes. Only if, yeah, only if you count the illegal <laughs> votes. Yeah, Sorry, I, mean, I had to do it. <laughs> yeah. Having, having said that, um, there's a new group that keeps popping up on Facebook now. I run into it myself because I'm not on Facebook, but I um, I think it's called like Stop the Count or something like that. There's Stop the uh, Count, Stop the Steal, QAnon. Uh, maybe it's Stop the Steal. But uh, I was reading an article detailing how Facebook, I mean, they are, uh, you know, they claim they're doing their best to squash these groups. 
but they're just popping up so fast. They can't do anything about it. I, I also, yeah, I also refuse good. to believe. I refuse to believe that they're actually doing everything that they can. It drives uh, yeah, engagement I, for their platform. They're they're interested in profits ahead of ahead of democracy, ahead of like individual freedoms, ahead of all that. They're interested in profits. Well, yeah. well, they probably want to do something. They just can't hear us or hear you know anyone say anything over the amount of stack of cash they have in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the money accumulates too fast. They can't hear. <laughs> It said, yeah, all, all the counting machines are just going constantly. <laughs> yeah, our, our voices don't penetrate, you know, through a football field length of money. So, uh, <laughs> but but with that, I mean, going going with social media, we, we've talked about social media as one of the best places to really spread misinformation. And again, it, the difference between misinformation and disinformation is misinformation is not done intentionally. If it's done intentionally, then we go into that disinformation realm. But these are people who will have, you know, an, an ignorance in certain areas and they'll see something looks official or someone that has an official sounding title will say something on, uh, you know, a, a large media company's platform and, They'll be like, oh, okay, yes, like this, this is, this is a hundred percent truth. And, and this is what I believe now. And they, they just don't dive more into it because they already have their link that is from a non-biased source as they would feel. And they can just share it all around. A- another item with that is people hearing things. And then, you know, five years down the road, they try to recall it. And it's not 100% accurate. And I'm sure we'll have this with coronavirus. In in 2030, I guarantee you that the information about the coronavirus and what the pandemic was like and how people handled it and stuff like that will be a lot different than actually how it was in today's reality. And these are going to be, you know, People that are going to be relaying this information via, you know, just telling it to to other people or or saying like, oh, I remember during the pandemic that masks were a hundred dollars each and and you couldn't buy gas for your vehicle and you know all, all these other things. And it's like, okay, I mean, yeah, mass prices went up a lot, but they weren't a hundred dollars each. You could buy gas still, you know. Uh, all these bad things. So food was missing off of shelves for, you know, half the year. It's like, well, no, food was missing off the shelves for, you know, like a, a few a weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Le- less than less than eight weeks. Uh, and then things were back to normal. Uh, but but we're going to have a lot of this stuff that's going to be happening in, in 10 years where the representation of what it was like or, or actually how things were are going to be diluted or slightly exaggerated um, and people are just going to forget. And we're going to have another situation like this, you know, in 20, 50, a hundred years where everyone's <laughs> forgot what it was like during this time, because all of us are dead. And then I'd be like, Oh my gosh, hey, like, Drew, this has yourself. never happened before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. be a robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is true. I, I, I will never uh, upload myself to the matrix or, to any you know fake you don't have things, a choice, so yeah. Oh gosh, why would they even want me? Why Dr. would they Facebook. even want me in there? 
Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna get sucked. Uh, no. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'll let you take that as you want. Um, <laughs> Zucks with a Z. Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> but <laughs> going back on misinformation, these misinformation campaigns, what can start as misinformation? Those who want to do disinformation can take these and just run with them and then start making disinformation uh, and and running unbelievably successful campaigns with this. So so we have to remember disinformation is unintentional or I mean, pardon that misinformation is unintentional, but misinformation can lead into some of the best disinformation campaigns once this misinformation Mm -hmm starts becoming popular yep just amplify it right like give, give it a give it a megaphone and, and make it louder like what what might be a fringe belief can just be picked up by bad actors and then replicated and magnified and then all of a sudden you have a much larger section of the population believing some really crazy stuff so as is as is usually the case you know we've covered a lot of stuff that is not potentially uh all that heartening especially given the kind of political environments where we have a president refusing to concede. We have a pandemic that is running. We're, America, baby, third wave. We're in third wave. All those other stupid countries are in their second wave. We're in the third. Uh, like, it, it's crazy. Number one. Yeah, number one. <laughs> uh, it's crazy to, to, you know, we're really living in an era where we do not not only hear about, but we see and feel the impact of these disinformation and misinformation information um campaigns so how do we how do we stop this i wish i wish i had an answer uh hold social media companies accountable is a good step in the right direction um Mm -hmm. but in terms of what we can do on an individual basis check the source for one right like again going back to the whole notion of false dichotomy like it's not a hundred percent real or a hundred percent fake it's probably somewhere in the middle and also Various kind of news outlets aren't 100% real or 100% fake. If you're if you're sharing something from a website, say like I I don't know BuzzFeed or uh, theblaze.com or Breitbart or like any of these sites that are kind of notorious for having like not good reporting, being salacious. You sh- yeah, know. keep keep that in mind, right? Like Reuters is a great uh, a great place to look associated press I, i'm a big fan of the economist uh anything that's like like fact-based like going for for facts there are also plenty of sites that are like or, sorry sites plenty of publications that while they do put their partisan spin on things they do also base their reporting uh in facts so for instance on the left you have the new york times on the right you have the wall street journal these are actually reputable sources and despite the fact that they might not be saying what you want to hear at the same time like these are reputable sources Infowars, yeah, not so much. <laughs> what? Critically, that's just because you don't care about the frogs. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I'll have you know, I do care about the gay frogs. You're a jerk for insinuating otherwise. Uh, also, critically read articles. I, again, this goes back to the the flaw. In, you know, I, I feel like in 2020, we're really seeing this. 
uh, coming from a hacker background, I'm usually hacking computers, but we're really seeing like all the flaws that you can take advantage of in humans are really coming to the forefront in 2020. And one of them is you're just being barraged with so much information that you might not have time to read all the articles that you're seeing. And like, I suffer from this as well. But if you're going to share information, read it first, right? Like don't retweet an article that you haven't read and be like, oh my gosh, look at this just because you read the headline. Headlines are supposed to be eye-catching. They're supposed to be the thing that is drawing you in. And like, there's somebody once said this to me and I, I, it has rung true ever since. It's like, if you ever see an article that the title of it is phrased as a question of like, is so-and-so doing such and such? The answer is invariably it's no. No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> There's a name for that. Is there? I, I, yeah. yeah, I call it bullshit. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so how do you, how do you determine if a, if a source is credible? Uh, look at the sources for the body of work. See if they are cited by other reputable sources. Um, if Alex Jones is there, no. Uh, there's all sorts of certain, certain metrics that you can use to determine whether or not a source is credible. Also, check your biases. Like the, a, a really powerful bias that I constantly have to keep in check is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is when you see something that agrees with you, you are more likely to believe it, right? You are more likely to think like, yeah, this is true. This is true. Just because it agrees with your worldview. When in reality, you should be seeking out stuff that doesn't agree with your worldview. And when you do find something that agrees with your worldview, you should be extra cautious, extra skeptical, because you are predispositioned to believe that that is true, that that is that that is factual. Also, use resources to check. If you've never used Snopes.com, um, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, one of the other things that's kind of crazy is that like all of these great fact checking resources are also being called out as like, that's propaganda. By it's the folks, news, man. yeah, by the folks <laughs> that are spreading all the, the all the misinformation and disinformation. It's like, ah, uh, it, it's just crazy that we've gotten to this point where if facts don't agree with your worldview, it's the facts that are wrong. It's, yeah. it's insane. De- deny everything, make counter accusations. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, totally. That's what it is. Yep, yep. So, but Snopes.com is actually a good place to check whether or not something is true. Snopes.com is a great place to check whether or not something is true. But like, dig in, and if you find that what you have shared or what you believe or what you have read is actually wrong, that's okay. What's not okay is to be like, well, I just, I know better than these facts. Like that's, that's the problem. It's okay to be wrong. It's like, I'm wrong all the time. I get things wrong constantly and being wrong is not a problem. It's not being willing to reassess the situation, to reassess your position. I mean, that's the whole deal. It's like when you are presented with factual information, reassess, right? Like you're not an idiot because you took the original position. You're an idiot if you get new information that contradicts your position and you don't adjust. And remember, do you use Snopes and sites like that as a starting ground, right? There, there's been times where Snopes has been wrong and stuff like that. So, so don't just take any one source. And this goes back to, you know, check the sources, check, read other information about it. Just keep on going with it. A lot of times Snopes is, uh, you know, they'll be correct uh, and other sites like that. But you still have to check in your own information. Don't just take someone else's word for it. Because it, it, as we've seen, other places could be easily deceived into believing something is is true or or present something as as fact like we saw with coca-cola and the scientists 
dealing with sugar and obesity, right? So keep on doing your own research. Use these places as base grounds. Use these tools and these resources we just laid out as a baseline. But always do your own research, especially that confirmation bias one. Uh, it is unbelievable. You know, uh, eventually th- there, there's some small research that that I was doing with one of my employees on this, and maybe we'll release it one day. But the confirmation bias problem is just unbelievable and it's the easiest way Mm -hmm. to take advantage of a group of people if you want them to start believing a certain thing and it it is it is something that we always have to fight so even if so snope you're like oh this is false you go to snopes and it's like yeah this is false look into why people are saying it may not be right or or just continue to do this research. And the problem with this is you don't have unlimited time for this. And this is where we have this conundrum where disinformation and misinformation is such a hot commodity right now because it is so easy to spread both. And we just don't have time to fact check everything. There's a lot of things that we hear every single day that we might take as fact that is actually false. And it could be by the no wrongdoing of anyone else. It's just because we hear it and we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, that fits in my worldview. And we just keep on going with it. So it is a lot of work that is being put onto you, which is unfortunate. But it is the reality in which we live in today. So the three takeaways for today's episode are one, that misinformation is when people are sharing incorrect information inadvertently. Whereas disinformation is when parties are coming up with false information and sharing it intentionally. Two, if a friend is spreading misinformation, point it out. Accidentally spreading misinformation is incredibly easy to do. Understand that it will happen and don't be too hard on yourself or others when it does. Help them out. And three, share what you learn about identifying misinformation with others. I don't know how we're going to solve this problem holistically, but at least from the ground up, when we have individuals that know how to spot this information and call it out, and when we have the ability to point that out to others, we'll at least start making progress. We hope you've learned how pervasive bad information is online and a few new ways of identifying it. Please remain skeptical out there. Even of us, we'll have an appendix of links in the show notes. If something doesn't check out, let us know. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or rate our podcast on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe.